This WBEZ podcast is supported by Ravinia, with over 100 concerts under the stars this summer, including Daryl Hall and Elvis Costello, Nora Jones with special guest Mavis Staples, the Beach Boys with special guest John Stamos, Shaggy and TLC, Jason Isbell and the 400 Unit, the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, and more. Their 30-acre park is nestled in a gently wooded area. Bring your own picnic or eat at one of the park restaurants. Tickets available now only at ravinia.org. This WBEZ podcast is supported by the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Suicide is a topic that hides in the shadows. It's time we talk away the dark, learn how to spot the warning signs for suicide, and how you can have an open, caring, real conversation to help save lives. Visit the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention to watch the new short film and learn more at AFSP.org slash talkawaythedark. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and this is WBEZ's Weekly News Recap. Each week on The Recap, we take you inside the biggest local and state stories of the week. This week, do they or don't they? The mayor and the police union saying different things about a new contract. This is an eight-year agreement. I can tell you that much. Unfortunately, uh, Mr. Canizara's announcement that there's a deal, it just simply wasn't correct. Superintendent Brown goes to Washington. A violent summer drawing the city's top cop to the White House today. Chicago implements some police reforms. In one program, mental health workers will be dispatched with paramedics for behavioral health calls. The second program will use paramedics and recovery specialists on calls involving substance abuse. And Governor Pritzker meets with the president. We're so pleased to get together with the president to talk about this infrastructure plan to rebuild our roads and our bridges, our waterways, our airports, and broadband. Joining me for those stories and more is Laura Washington, Chicago Sun-Times columnist and ABC7 political analyst. Welcome back, Laura. It's great to be with you again. And Kelly Bauer, breaking news editor at Block Club Chicago. Welcome back, Kelly. Thank you so much for having me. So both Governor Pritzker and the Chicago Police Superintendent, David Brown, they were at the White House this week meeting with the president. So, Laura, I want to start with the governor's meeting on Wednesday. What happened there? What did we learn? Well, we learned that, uh, as, as, you, as we just heard in that soundbite, that there's a lot of needs in Illinois and across the nation, for, especially around infrastructure. This is about the president trying to build support across the country, particularly among his political allies, to make his case for his infrastructure bill. And J.B. Prisker and other public officials from around the nation were there to help him make that case. J.B. Prisker and, and Joe Biden have a relationship that goes back many years. Uh, J.B. Prisker, before he was, and continues to be a major Democratic Party donor. So he, they were natural allies. And, in fact, Prisker also had a private meeting with Joe Biden where he got to, to talk about many more needs for Illinois. And while the president was talking about infrastructure with the governors and mayors, Secretary of Transportation Pete Buttigieg was planning his trip to Chicago now, he is here today to rally support for Biden's $1.2 trillion roads and bridges plan. So, Kelly, what's he doing while he's here? Yeah, so Secretary Buttigieg is meeting with Mayor Lori Lightfoot and Governor J.B. Pritzker, trying to shore up more support for this plan. Um, they're going to be making stops around the city and then head out a bit into the suburbs as well, looking to try to push the American Jobs Plan which they're saying is going to create millions of jobs for Americans and help us recover from the pandemic. And now, Laura, let's let's get back to the police superintendent's visit to the White House. 
he was there, of course, with the big city mayors and police chiefs from all across the country. Now, does it look like any more federal help to combat gun violence is going to be coming here soon? That's what is being said there, there but there haven't been many specifics uh, put on that promise. Superintendent Brown said that uh, both the president and Attorney General Merrick Gar- Garland promised that there would be significant commitments made to Chicago, uh, particularly around fighting gun violence and, and issuing more measures around gun control. There's been a lot of talk about this uh, strike force that's been, that's been promised federal authorities that would come in and and work with the police department to limit guns and, and to fight the, the guns that are coming in from to the city and to the state from across our borders. Uh, heavy focus on gun trafficking, but not many details. I, I, I What Brown has said is that he is stressed with both the president and with the attorney general that this is an urgent need, and we know why, because of the terrible violence that we've been seeing right. across the city in the last several weeks or months. But again, um, no promises, no specific promises of, of when and what. Just significant changes. Just significant. That's what we're getting. <laughs> now, as our mayor awaits more federal resources to fight this crime that we've got going on here, she unveiled one of her new ideas, and that's a million-dollar reward fund for information about illegal guns. What are the details of that plan, Kelly? Yeah, this was a bit of a surprise announcement yesterday. She was actually at a groundbreaking for the new Park District headquarters when Mayor Lightfoot said that the city is creating a million-dollar fund where Chicagoans will be able to submit tips about illegal guns and where they can be found. And if those tips pan out, then the city will pay them a portion from this fund. Now, you said it was a surprise uh, mention. And do you think she's feeling the pressures here? Definitely. I think that there has been just national spotlight on Chicago with its violence issues lately. And, you know, there's only so long that you can call for federal help before you have to start taking steps yourself. So Mayor Lightfoot didn't release many details about this. It's a very new program, but she said it will be rolling out soon. Now, there was also some conflict between the mayor and the police union this week over the police contract. Um, The union president said that they'd negotiated a new deal, but the mayor had a very different take on it. Uh, Why are they on a new contract, Laura? The good news is that at least they're not calling each other names anymore. The mayor and the police union uh, chief have had a long, very difficult and highly negatively personal relationship. And at least they seem to be talking more calmly now. Kelly, the ACLU is suing the Chicago Police Department to get records from a task force that collected social media information after last summer's protests. Can you give us some of the background on this case? Yes. So during all the unrest last year, it came out that police had been closely monitoring social media posts from around the city. And they said that they did this as a way to keep track of everything that was happening during those weeks when we did see a lot of protests and then also saw looting. Um, But, of course, that treads a very fine line between privacy and preventing crime. So the ACLU has filed this lawsuit. And yesterday, Mayor Lightfoot responded and said that, in her opinion, the police made a specific effort to monitor only sources on open sources on social media and to respect people's privacy. But we've seen in the past that the police department hasn't always necessarily respected that line. So it'll be interesting to see what comes out of this lawsuit and what exactly the police department was delving into. Chicago police were also in the news this week for a pilot program. They're launching it in the fall, and it's going to have mental health professionals answer some 911 calls instead of cops. Now, Laura, this is something that's being tried out in other parts of the country, too, right? 
Absolutely, it has been and with, with mixed results. But the idea is to, to, to take police officers out of the equation on some of these calls, particularly because police officers have so much, so much, they're already so overburdened. And many experts believe, particularly health, mental health experts believe that, a, that you need more of a public health approach, approach in terms of responding to these calls. So there are going to be two pilot programs, one on the north side and one on the south side, that are going to, to look at that, and then they're going to be uh, evaluated down the road. Uh, this comes out of a, a long debate about um, how police handle these situations. We, we remember the Laquan McDonald, terrible Laquan McDonald shooting, right. and the Antonio LeGreer shooting. Both, in both cases, the, it, it appears that, that the young men in, in question who were killed were going through some kind of mental health episodes. The police got involved, and, and they were killed. So the idea is that maybe if you bring in trained professionals who step in first, that maybe that's a better solution and a more healthy solution. Kelly, are your reporters going to be following this 911 pilot program? Absolutely. This is something that we had been reporting on in the past um, about how groups were calling for this and aldermen. So we'll certainly be following up to see how effective this program is and if it's something that could grow in Chicago. All right, let's look at what Governor Pritzker did this week uh, having to do with criminal justice. He signed a bill that included legislation making Illinois the first state to ban police from lying to minors during interrogations. Laura, it's frightening that this was actually allowed in the first place, no? <laughs> the case that was was cited most often in terms of the impetus for this legislation was Terrell Swift, who was uh, convicted way back in 19, back in 1993. He was, he was one of the Inglewood Four who had been accused of, of rape and murder uh, back in 94. And he was interrogated by police at the time that he was, at the time he was 17. Police lied to him about some of the aspects of the case and tricked him into admitting to things that he had not done. He spent 15 and a half years in prison. Uh, and again, this case goes back to 93, but it also reminded me of the case of uh, Ryan Harris back in 1998, a young 11-year-old girl who was mur- brutally raped and murdered. And two boys, seven and eight-year-old, were were apprehended and arrested by the police, mm-hmm. interrogated, seven- and eight-year-old boys, and forced to admit to things that they did not do. And it turned out, of course, that they, they were not guilty of this rape and murder. So what took so long? Yeah. Uh, I, long overdue so long. here. And as you said, the concept of interrogating children, especially without guardians, without which happened in the Ryan Harris case, without guardians, without uh, advocates, is just shocking. So, again, long overdue. Yeah, unthinkable. Uh, many children uh, at Chicago public schools, they're no longer going to see police officers on their campuses next year. Kelly, this week, quite a few schools made the decision about whether to keep cops in their buildings, right? Yes. Um, so Pascal Sabino from Black Club teamed up with Maya Spoto from Chalkbeat, okay. and they found that so far at least 22 local school councils have voted to eliminate one or more of their school resource officers. Um, and when they're doing that, in return, the city's uh, Chicago Public Schools is now saying that they can hire social workers or private security workers to replace some of those officers. So the councils that have done it have said that they think ultimately this could be better for the mental health and well-being and safety of students in the long term. How do social workers keep a school building safe, Laura? You know, without police, well, how do we hold I these think, folks responsible? I think that uh, the feeling uh, among many activists is that um, the police have they create an environment, a very hostile uh, uh, sort of a a militaristic environment 
many of the cases where children are in trouble, where there's there is a problem, where the kids act out, that is should be more the work of a social worker and not a police officer. P- police officers are supposed to be involved with fighting criminals, not children. That's Laura Washington of the Chicago Sun-Times and ABC7. Also along with us on the recap today is Kelly Bauer, breaking news editor at Block Club Chicago. All right, let's move on to part two of the recap and take on stories like these. This is also an opportunity to dive into the rich joys and traditions of the Asian American and Pacific Islander community, whose presence here predates the founding of this nation. In her resignation letter, Legislative Inspector General Carol Pope writes that the office, quote, has no real power to affect change or shine a light on ethics violations. Four young women who worked at Evanston's beaches wrote up a petition alleging, quote, blatant sexism, sexual harassment, assault, racism, and discrimination at the lakefront. SCIU Local 73 Union says it's reached a tentative agreement to return to work this morning. Okay, Kelly, this one's for you. Give us some details about this SEIU strike and the contract they negotiated. So these are members of the Service Employees International Union uh, 73, so Cook County workers. They were on a strike for 18 days. It was the longest public sector strike in recent history for Chicago. And They've now reached a deal and are back at work, but it has resulted in some damage to their relationship with Cook County Board President Tony Preckwinkle, who, you know, is usually presented as a hero to unions. Mm -hmm. But the tides were trading barbs during this, and they've said that there has been disrespect to their union. So what's the next step here? I think the next step is that they're still working out some finer details The agreement didn't come with raising wage floors, and that's something that is key to any union. So I think that's something that the members will continue to push for. Now, Chicago Inspector General Joe Ferguson recently announced that he was going to be stepping down in October. But he seems to have have a lot of business to take care of before he goes. There's a lot of audits coming out. This week he released an audit arguing that aldermen should no longer be allowed to pick their ward superintendents. Laura, Joe Ferguson's been pretty busy, huh? Yes, he has. (laughs) (laughs) Like for somebody who's stepping down, wow, you've got a lot to say. So walk us through. Well, that's he's busy because he is stepping down, and, and of course, we should note that his term is ending, and and the mayor, Mayor Lightfoot, has indicated that that she is not interested in renewing it, which is interesting because they were once close allies and friends before the mayor was elected. But Ferguson's on his way out the door. He's trying to get as much done as possible because there's also a concern that maybe the next inspector general won't be quite as vigilant. This issue is is comes out of an audit, a two-year audit that Ferguson did, uh, looking at the ward superintendents in the city. And he concluded that ward superintendents who report to the aldermen, who are chosen by the aldermen, that that relationship should be changed because it's a political relationship and it does not allow for independent oversight and application of independent standards to make sure that the best people are in these jobs. Needless to say, the aldermen are not at all happy about that recommendation. Mm -hmm. Uh, They say that they can't do their jobs. They can't be effective representatives of their constituents if they can't oversee and control who picks up the garbage, who cleans up the bank vacant lots, who makes sure that the streets are kept clean and orderly. And so that was a battle that Ferguson knew he was going to have to fight. And to some folks' surprise, the mayor came out and basically knocked down the recommendation and said that she felt that the aldermen should continue to be able to control who they have as board superintendents. Now, we've got two other high-profile departures this week at City Hall. After 30 years and four mayors, 
Business Affairs and Consumer Protection Commissioner Rosa Escareño. She's calling it quits. And Mark Kelly, Commissioner of Cultural Affairs and Special Events, is also retiring. Any thoughts, Kelly, on what is behind these resignations? Well, it's interesting because they have been with the city for a long time, particularly Commissioner Escareño. People saw her a lot during the pandemic since she was leading the business department. Mm-hmm. So it does bring up that question about how well is she working with people in City Hall? We've gotten a lot of complaints from aldermen and from other people who have said that they feel like they get kind of bullied or not listened to. So it will be intriguing to hear what, if anything, these commissioners say after they leave their posts. Now, let's stay on this theme of resignations because we can. (laughs) The uh, Mm -hmm. Illinois Legislative Inspector General, who's uh, the watchdog for the state legislature, she resigned this week. She submitted a pretty controversial letter, and she said in there, quote, uh, it was clear to her that ethics reform was not a priority. Laura, that sounds like she's pretty frustrated. Huh. For many years, several years at least, uh, the state has been supposedly laser-focused on ethics reform, particularly coming out of the, con- the ongoing comment scandal and, and the fact that several uh, close associates of former Speaker Mike Madigan have been caught up and indicted in that scandal. But yet we have... Uh, we have an inspector general who's ready to step aside. She feels state laws don't don't provide her with enough freedom to do the job that she wants to do. She's asked for subpoena power. She's asked to be able to investigate uh, cases to come to her outside of the legislature, complaints that are made through the media, uh, and 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 she's not allowed to, to do those kinds of investigations. So basically mm-hmm. she's throwing her hands up and saying, I can't do my job. Well, another inspector general made news this week, and this one was for the Chicago Park District. This is a story that we have actually covered quite a bit here on WBEZ because uh, the Chicago Park District's watchdog released a report yesterday alleging that three lifeguards harassed and assaulted their co-workers. How damaging, Laura, is this report for the city and park district? It's explosive and very damaging. Um, Again, we're in a a time frame where uh, Me Too has been around, the whole Me Too movement and the attention the sensitivity to that has been ongoing for years. A complaint was made and nothing apparently happened. It wasn't until another complaint came in and came to the park district through the mayor's office. The mayor's office, as I understand, stand forward at that complaint that it started to get attention. Mm. We're also seeing something breaking, I think, in Evanston in terms of the lifeguards there. So it, it seems like there's some overwhelming problems here that you would think that there would be a lot more sensitivity, given the conversation we've been having about sexual harassment for years. You've been reporting on this as well at Block Club Chicago, Kelly? Yes. Yeah, so our Justin Lawrence just had a story about the report today detailing all these allegations that have come out about lifeguards. And three of the ones who were mentioned in the most recent report have resigned or were forced out. But at least one of them had a history of being accused of assault through, I think, CPS. So it'll be interesting to see what kind of action is taken here to prevent further abuses. Let's pivot over to the state's eviction ban. Uh, That expires at the end of August now. So it's been pushed to the end of August, extended, I should say. Uh, Thousands, though, are at risk of losing their homes. But the governor announced this week that an additional $2 billion in rental assistance is going to be available in the fall. Kelly, are Block Club reporters hearing that people are still struggling to pay rent right now in July? Absolutely. So just recently, Alex Hernandez, who covers some of the Northwest Side for us, went door to door with groups that are 
going to homes and apartments, giving people information about mortgage and rent relief because they fear that there will be thousands of people who are going to face eviction. And these groups are working all over the city. They've teamed up because they're just desperate to get information to people to hopefully keep them in their homes now that this moratorium is going to be lifted. So their incomes still aren't back to pre-pandemic levels then? In some instances, that's the issue. Some people still do not have jobs. Some people fell behind on rent because they were out of work. And, you know, there hasn't necessarily been a way to catch up on months and months of back payments like that. So the state and city have offered programs, but in general, they haven't been enough to meet the enormous need that there's been during the pandemic. Luckily, the state is still accepting some rental relief applications, and Mm -hmm. it plans to open more programs later, I believe, in the fall. Uh, Laura, the governor also signed into law another measure. This one would make Illinois the first state to require teaching Asian American history in public school. Huge, right? Absolutely, particularly coming at a time when we've been seeing uh, increased violence against Asian Americans in, in, in this country. So it's an important step, and it's, and it's a part of a series of pieces of legislation that have been uh, moving through Springfield. There's also a piece of legislation that requiring LGBTQ history to be taught in the schools. And this, this comes out of not just out of concern about anti-Asian sentiment, but a concern that the immigrant story about Asians is not being taught in school. So it's, it's big news. Now there's going to be a lot of flexibility in terms of how the schools implement this law. But every school, elementary and high school, public school in the state in, in, the, in Illinois is going to be required to, to teach Asian American history. And so this will be at all levels. Uh, when does it come into effect, Laura? That's a good question. It was signed into law. Okay, it was signed in, just signed into law, and it, it takes effect, I think, next school year. So it won't start this September. September will start next September. 2022-2023. Correct. All right, let's talk about COVID uh, because we have to, and it's still very much here, right, a, a contrary to popular belief. Um, as much as we want to believe that this pandemic is over, travel restrictions are back, right, and COVID infections are up. Uh, in some parts of the state. So, so Kelly, tell us what the update is with that. I believe it's now in all 50 states we're seeing increased cases. Yikes. And, of course, it's no different in Chicago. Today, the average number of cases reported per day is up 56% just compared to a week ago. Um, in Illinois, we're also seeing some jumps up, particularly in downstate counties closer to Missouri and On that note, Missouri and Arkansas are the two states that were added to Chicago's travel advisory this week. Um, Experts are saying that this is being fueled by the Delta variant, which is, you know, more contagious. Mm -hmm. And it's especially spreading among people who aren't vaccinated. And adding Missouri and Arkansas to the the travel restriction, this comes after quite some time, Kelly, of having no states on the list. Is that right? Yes, for so long, um, I believe more than 40 days, there hadn't been anything on Chicago's travel advisory to the point that the health department just started saying, like, no real updates this week and things like that. (laughs) Nothing to see here. Yeah. And so this does show, you know, a a change. And it's something that Dr. Arudi, the city's public health director, said people don't need to be alarmed about yet, but should keep an eye on. And just again, she said the best thing people can do is to get fully vaccinated Interestingly, we're seeing, I believe she said, about 98 or 99 percent of all new cases in the Chicago area are among people who haven't gotten all of their shots. Of course. You have also written in depth uh, about a local 22-year-old woman uh, and her struggle 
with long COVID. Can you tell us a bit about her experience, Kelly? Yeah, so I've been speaking with Sateria Tejeda, who's from Mount Greenwood on the far south side since last October. And when we first talked, Sateria told me about how before she got COVID, she used to run marathons. She was healthy. She didn't have underlying conditions. She was only 21 years old at the time. But after COVID, she was left with recurring fevers. She was so exhausted that she barely got out of bed. She would go to sit down for five minutes and instead take six-hour naps. So her health was just devastated, and she thought that her life was forever changed. But I recently caught up with Sateria, and she told me that after getting fully vaccinated in April, within 10 days, her health just had a huge turnaround. She's been able to go for walks. She has all her energy back. Her fevers are gone. She can smell and taste again. Wow. It's a huge reversal, and she thinks that a lot of it does have to do with getting vaccinated. That's a great story. I'm glad you shared that. That is Kelly Bauer, breaking news editor at Block Club Chicago, and Laura Washington, Chicago Sun-Times columnist and ABC7 political analyst. Have a great weekend. Want to hear more conversation around the stories that matter to you most? Make sure you're subscribed or tell your smart speaker to play WBEZ's Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Thanks for making us a part of your day. We'll meet again tomorrow. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.